Thank you for your good work. their shoes on just like you do. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You have to remind yourself of that. Just be who you are, yeah. Okay, can we regather? Okay, we're going to move into a last session here on uh, ministering in today's milieu of cultures. That's a challenge that we have to address, whether you like it or not, if you're going to be effective for God. And I've kind of prepped you a little bit about what I'm going to talk about in previous session. Here's an interesting story. Listen to this. A lady in a faded gingham dress and her husband, dressed in a homespun threadbare suit, stepped off the train in Boston and walked timidly without an appointment into the Harvard University President's 
outer office. The secretary could tell in a moment that such backwoods country hicks had no business at Harvard, probably didn't even deserve to be in Cambridge. We'd like to see the president, the man said softly. He'll be busy all day, the secretary snapped. We'll wait, the lady replied. For hours, the secretary ignored them, hoping that the couple would finally become discouraged and go away. They didn't. And the secretary grew frustrated and finally decided to disturb the president, even though it was a chore she always regretted. Maybe if you see them for a few minutes, they'll leave, she said to him. He sighed in exasperation and nodded. Someone of his importance obviously didn't have the time to spend with them, and he detested gingham dresses and homespun suits cluttering up his outer office. The president, stern-faced and with dignity, strutted toward the people. The lady told him, we had a son who attended Harvard for one year. He loved Harvard. He was happy here. But about a year ago, he was accidentally killed. My husband and I would like to erect a memorial to him somewhere on campus. The president wasn't touched. He was shocked. Madam, he said gruffly, we can't put up a statue for every person who attended Harvard and died. If we did, this place would look like a cemetery, if you only realized how much of a cemetery the place really has become. Oh, no, the lady explained quickly. We don't want to erect a statue. We thought we'd like to give a building to Harvard. The president rolled his eyes. He glanced at the gingham dress and homespun suit and then exclaimed, A building? Do you have any earthly idea how much a building costs? And he went on to talk to them about the millions of dollars in physical plants there at Harvard. For a moment, the lady was silent. The president was pleased. Maybe he could get rid of them now. The lady turned to her husband and said quietly, Is that all it costs to start a university? Why don't we just start our own? The husband nodded. The president's face wilted in confusion and bewilderment, and Mr. and Mrs. Leland Stanford got up and walked away, traveling to Palo Alto, California, where they established the university that bears their name, Stanford University, a memorial to a son that Harvard no longer cared about. You can easily judge the character of others by how you treat who they think they can do nothing for them. That's a true story written by Malcolm Forbes. That was a collision of two different cultures. Culture is a real issue in life. <clears throat> and we have to learn how to develop exegetical skills. And there's two skills I want to talk to you about. And uh, number one is exegeting the scriptures our preaching and teaching from an appropriate exegetical treatment of the scriptures, how we divide the word of God. And maybe I can give you a couple of definitions. Haddon Robinson would define biblical preaching. Expository preaching is the communication of a biblical concept derived from and transmitted through, this is heavy stuff here, I wrote it out for you so you can follow it and <clears throat> think on it later. Transmitted through a historical, grammatical, 
and literary study of a passage in its context. She lighted off her camel. Would not fit this definition very well. Okay, which the Holy Spirit first applies to the personality and experience of the preacher, then through him to his hearers. That's Haddon Robbins' definition of exegetical preaching. Learning to do it well, what the scriptures really say. Here's John Stott. He has also a definition that I think is good. It is my contention that all true Christian preaching is expository preaching. To expound scripture is to bring out of the text what is there and expose it to view. The opposite of exposition is imposition, which is to impose on the text what is not there. Whether the text is long or short, our responsibility as expositors is to open it up in such a way that it speaks its message clearly, plainly, accurately, relevantly, without addition, subtraction, or falsification. In expository preaching, the biblical text is a master which dictates and controls what is said. We have to do a good job of that. And you can thank God for a pastor who has been well-trained and knows how to do that. I've been in churches and listened to pastors sometimes who butcher the text. And they have a sermon that they wanted to preach and some ideas they wanted to preach, and they try to force it into the text that they've got in front of them and make it say what they really want it to say, rather than allowing it to speak for itself and for us to apply it. God is capable of using his word in powerful ways when we exposit the text properly. So that's a very, very important thing. And hopefully you as a teacher, uh, as a preacher, endeavor to not bend the scriptures to your thoughts, but allow your thoughts to be shaped by the scriptures. It's important to use the right translation of the word of God. And by this, I'm talking about an essentially literal translation is preferred. Essentially literal translation of the Bible is preferred. You can keep moving away from an essentially literal translation to a more moderate translation and ultimately out here to basically just a commentary of what you think the Bible is saying. And that's not going to accomplish. The closer you are to what the Bible is really saying, I'm a stickler on this. All morning I've been hammering away at you about the centrality of the Word of God and keeping the Scriptures in the forefront, not to be less than the Scriptures, not to be more than the Scriptures in our legalism. But be where the Bible is. Nothing more, nothing less. In the language of the people that are being ministered to. And I already talked about Old Elizabethan English. Why do we talk to people in Old Elizabethan English that don't speak Old Elizabethan English in their common day? Uh, that is a question that to me is an enigma. Why people are hung up on that and fight over it. Uh, 
talk to them in a language that they can understand. When Christ came into this world, I doubt if he talked to them in the language that he and God the Father are used to talking to each other with. He talked to them in Greek. And in the language of the Old Testament. He talked to them in a language that they know and understand. As I mentioned to you, you don't make major decisions of your life unless you hear the proposition in your heart language. That's why missionaries are so given to learning the language without accent as much as possible. I know that's difficult, but they work at it so that they are not a hindrance, but they can communicate to those people effectively. Here's a book that you, if you really are into this and you really want to study this, Leland Riken is the head, was the head of the literature department at Wheaton College in Illinois for many years. He's retired now. And he wrote The Word of God in English. It is excellent, talking about these various issues. I want to move from that now and talk to you about another area that we need to do well at exegeting. And that is exegeting our culture that we're going to be ministering in. If you don't understand the culture, you're going to be speaking to the wind. You're not going to be effective at all with the Word of God if you do not understand the culture of the people you're trying to talk to. When I've been traveling overseas, that's an issue. Uh, I had a child who was a missionary in Ukraine for a number of years. And when I speak in Ukrainian language, I don't speak the language, but somebody translates what I'm saying. Uh, it's a challenge because they have a different culture. You can crack a joke that everybody rolls on the floor in America, and you can crack a joke and they look at you like, what are you saying? Uh, I didn't get that. Uh, why? It's culture. You've got to learn culture if you're going to be effective in communicating to them. So what is culture? I have a definition there for you on your paper, right? The customary, this is a definition from Merriam-Webster Dictionary. The customary beliefs such as uh, customary beliefs would be what you learn from your family, what you learn from your neighborhood, what you learn from your formal education, what you learn from any source. Uh, these are customary beliefs. And uh, you have learned those things over time. Whether right or wrong, you learn them. Customary beliefs. Social forms. Social forms have to do with language. Customs, habits. Some of us open our Christmas presents Christmas Eve. Some open them Christmas morning. Those are social forms. How we learn to talk to each other. How we learn to communicate with each other. How we treat each other in manners and standards and interests. Material traits has to do with ownership. Materially, what you own. What is your standard of living? You have to grant that. Among the cultures, there's a big variance of standards of living. If you compare the standard of living of Canada or America compared to Chad, Africa, or some of those places in Africa, 
There is a huge difference between our standard of living and what we possess and what they possess. Huge. That all goes to make up culture. <clears throat> uh, when did uh, culture begin? Culture began actually at the Tower of Babel. So God is kind of the institutor of culture in a sense. And he dispersed them by changing all of their languages. And he created different cultures uh, among humans. So it's been a changing thing over these years. And as you and I recognize, and I particularly coming from America recognize, in the founding of our country in America, they spoke Old Elizabethan English. So it was appropriate for churches to use Old Elizabethan English. But the language changed over time. Culture changed over time. And so we have to learn to adapt to the new culture. Uh, I mentioned about myself, uh, I've had to go through repeated cultural changes. <clears throat> I grew up in a little town of 150 people. That little town had its culture. I thought every little town was just like my town. I grew up on a farm, learned how to talk with hosting cows all day. And uh, then I got to the city and where I was only talking to people, and that was a whole new game I had to learn. And a lot of other changes took place in my life. For example, I went south to go to get my education. And we were driving down. I was married at that point. And we needed gas, and we stopped in Lynchburg, Virginia. And that was a day when you didn't pump your own gas. And this guy came out and pumped gas for us. When he got done, he said something to me. I didn't understand him. I asked him over again. I didn't understand him. I got my wife out there. She didn't understand him. So he motioned to us to stay right there. He went into the gas station. He came back out with something in his hand. And what he had was a book of S&H Green Stamps. He was asking me, did I want S&H Green Stamps? But I was hearing a form of English I had never heard before in my life. I come to Canada. <clears throat> I like a little bit of variation, you know, process rather than process. And a few other things, uh, words that we use that are different. And uh, I've heard several of you use the word process. Right? Is that, am I saying that right? Process. Process. He's gaining. Socks. Huh? Socks. Socks. Okay. There are a lot of them. It all has to do with culture, doesn't it? And uh, we have to recognize that that is an issue. And I grew up with just some connection to a church. And it was in that little town, a church of about 30 people. And it was a dead church. I mean, nothing happened in there. As a teenager, I would sit in there and the only noise you ever heard was some farmer came in late and he sat in the back and he promptly went to sleep and he began to snore back there. That's about all you would ever hear. And up front, uh, they had a choir, a little choir, 
but the men all had on their overhauls and uh, probably the new ones before they <clears throat> wore out the ones they wore to the barn and then they would switch over. Uh, that was culture to me. That's what I thought every church was like. And when I got down to where I was going to study, they wanted me to go to a church one Sunday night after I got there, and it was a church of a 1,000 people in there that Sunday night. And it was a church that was alive. I mean, they were glory to God and hallelujah. And they had an amen corner down here in the front. You know what an amen corner is? Have you ever been in a church that has an amen corner? Maybe you ought to think about starting one. No. <laughs> they had this amen corner down there. It was 50 men. What they really were were the cheerleaders for everything that was happening on the platform with all their amens and glory to God. And all of a sudden, somebody began to go down the aisle with their handkerchief. Glory to God. And, uh, my wife and I looked at each other. We were in such culture shock. The announcement time came. We got up and walked out. We couldn't handle any more of that. <clears throat> but nothing happened that was anti-Bible. It was just culture. Well, the next week, somebody said, well, let's go to the church that's held on campus. And so we went to the church on campus, and they had about 3,000 students in. And if you weren't in a ministry someplace, you had to be at that church service. And so we went, and with 3,000 people there, I'd never been in a, a church service with that many people ever, 30 people, and then 1,000, but 3,000? <clears throat> and all of a sudden, out walked this group of people that had on these fancy robes. I had never seen fancy robes on a choir. I saw them, told you, overalls. <clears throat> Pretty soon, the one, last one coming out had on that fancy outfit as well, and he had this hood over his back, hanging down on his back, and his academic regalia. And uh, I said, whoa, what in the world is that? I never saw anything like that before. We were being exposed to all kinds of different cultures. When they did the Lord's Prayer, they chanted it. I had never heard the Lord's Prayer chanted before. Change. And I soon began to realize that change is okay as long as you're not violating Scripture. And there's a reason for it. And there was a reason, in a sense. They were in an academic institution, and they were doing some of the things that are academically acceptable. But anyway, that's quickly to let you know, I have children, and two of them were missionaries, one in Ukraine and one in South Africa, two different countries, and two different cultures, very different cultures. My kids have had to learn to adapt, and I've had to learn to adapt. How about you? Did you have to change in your culture? Anywhere along the line? How many of you are married or have been married? Was that a cultural change for you? <laughs> you had to decide whether you're going to squeeze the toothpaste from the top or the bottom, didn't you? I am 
What, are you going to roll the toilet paper over the top or under the bottom? All, all the different cultural things. That, and what did you have to end up doing? He learned. <laughs> we started young and he learned. <laughs> Here's a word that you want to tuck away. You had to blend. Each of you changed. To blend. That's what our churches have got to learn to do. Because in our churches, we've got cultures that have been around for a long time. And the younger generation have a different culture. And if you're not willing to blend... We're talking about culture, which is not God-mandated. God did not tell you to make these distinctives in your culture. We're all different. God knew that was going to be true. And that's why he didn't mandate forms in doing ministry. He left it to us to decide how we were going to do the ministry and how we were going to, what forms we were going to use to carry out his functions. He gave us functions but not the forms. So all of the programs you've got in this church really are man-made, trying to do the functions that God gave us. Okay? And then I talked to you about God. God also dealt with culture, and I've already put that up for you. In this graphic, really, he is dealing with culture. When Jesus, rather than staying in heaven, trying to get us to leave our culture and come over into his culture, uh, he went into their culture, identified with them, lived like them, except for their sin, in order to reach them. And uh, so I, I just want to, have you think a little more deeply with me. I've gotten you up to this point. Why is it important? <clears throat> the man who uh, followed me in the early church I pastored, the church that I mentioned was all farmers. Being a kid that grew up on a farm, I knew how farmers think. I knew how, what farmers were like. And if a farmer was sick one morning, I got up and milked his cows for him. And uh, I was right at home with farmers. I knew their culture and knew it well. Well, the kid who followed me had just graduated from Bible college. And uh, he had grown up in New York City, in the middle of the city. And his wife had grown up in the middle of New York City. So they came out to this place where I had finished pastoring. It was just a crossroads. You could only see six houses from the church. And uh, they got there, and they were so out of whack with the culture that was around there. Uh, for example, she only owned slacks. She did not own a dress. And at that time in that church, everybody wore a dress. I mean all the women, not the men too. But all the women wore a dress. And uh, he couldn't stand the smell of a barn. 
He wouldn't go near a farm to visit. Guess how long they lasted? Two years. And they moved on. She was petrified out there. There were no streetlights. And she, she was not a bit petrified in the middle of New York City. But out there she was. She was in a totally different culture. They could not have ministry because they could not adapt to the culture. That's why so many of our churches are dying. They are not willing to exegete the culture and adapt so that they can reach the cultures that are now coming around our churches not to do their sin. She should have bought some dresses. Well, it's the other way around these days. In a lot of our churches, they're still more formal in their dress, suits and ties and dresses. And our cultures, in a lot of places, not all places, but in a lot of places, is very casual out there. <clears throat> Only 20% of all the men in the United States own a suit. You want to reach men? Think about that one, how you're going to do it. So anyway, uh, let me get hasten on here. I haven't been keeping up, have I? Okay, I want you to think, how do we go about exegeting culture? How do we go about coming to understand culture? Well, one of the first things you need to do is by observation and study. Begin observing their customary beliefs, their social forms, their material traits. Like, you can go from one place and how they do funerals is very different than how they do funerals in another place. Up where... Connie came, comes from. I had never heard of this before, but when they have a funeral, when they are getting ready to take the body to the cemetery, they go by their home or go by where they work or they go by the whole procession, something that was meaningful to that person on their way to the cemetery, even though it's out of the way. I'd never heard of that before. Those are customary. Those are cultural things that people do. Same thing is true with weddings and other things that are in different cultures. Study. Find out what people do and racially and ethnically, economically, educationally, financially. There's a lot of issues in culture. Gather specific information, hard data with a formal study. In other words, you can go to your local government, planning commissions and chambers of commerce and the Federal Census Bureau. There's a lot of places where you can find out what's out there in your culture. And what do you need to become culturally to reach them? Uh, that's very important. Demographic studies are done and are very beneficial. In America, the cultural continues to evolve through many different worldviews and values and 
etc. And you better be up on all this stuff. A canned approach no longer seems to work. Like in America, the, the culture has become so secularized that if you go to them with the Romans road, they don't understand you. You've got to do what we call a meta-narrative. Meta means with, narrative means stories. And you take the stories of the Bible, you begin with, who's God? And you go back into the Garden of Eden. They don't know all that stuff. They've become secularized. They're ignorant about the Bible. That didn't used to be true in the early days of my ministry. You could talk to most anybody, and they had some sense of all of that. No longer. So you've got to change your methods. And the Romans Road or Kennedy's program, many others that are canned, are not being effective. So churches in America are changing some of that and going about it in a little different way. They're beginning to also find out what's really out there that they're working with. There's a little church over near where I grew up, and I've had ministry in that church. I always go back to the place where I grew up and try to invest as much as I can in their churches in that area. This is extremely rural, this church. They don't have a post office. They don't have a store. They don't have a gas station. There's nothing there but a crossroads. And they were convinced in that church of about 35 people that all the young people grow up and move away. So somebody encouraged them to do a formal study. And they found a church resource group that would be willing to do it for $150. They would do a demographic study of their area and tell them what's there. So they picked an arbitrary 10-mile radius around their church to find out what the culture was around their church. And the study showed them that there were 4,333 homes in that 10-mile radius around their church. That blew them away. They didn't think there were that many homes in that area. And at least 2.5 residents per household. Listen to this. The average age of those people that lived in that 10-mile radius around their church. Now remember, we're under the perception that all the young people move away. The average age turned out to be between 20 and 35 years of age. That should translate into about 13,000 people in that 10-mile radius. They had an awesome opportunity and did not realize it because they didn't understand the culture. Do some studies. I talked to you about when I was in Jamestown and the Swedish people and the Italian people. Uh, we tried all kinds of things until we finally found what would work in the Italian culture. And we expect our missionaries, when they go to a foreign country, to do the same kind of thing. And I, have a, I just want to encourage you to... Uh, do you have that question there on your paper? Can you be satisfied that you're fulfilling the Great Commission of Matthew 28 when you're primarily or only experiencing transfer growth or reaching people that are just like you? Have you ever noticed how that's true in churches? 
They only reach people that are just like themselves. They don't reach all cultures. I think our church congregation should be a reflection of the cultures that are around our church. So we have a fair number of blacks, or we have a fair number of Hispanics, or we've got a, others that are around our church. We've got some highly educated people and some people that have not had the benefit of a lot of education, or we've got people with a lot of money and people with very little money. Are you going to reach them all? Work at it. Help your congregation to become a reflection of its community, that you're reaching people for Christ. Now, here's a book. It's on your paper there. One Church, Four Generations. Now, this can be revised as a book, but it's a great book to start with. One Church, Four Generations, Understanding and Reaching All Ages in Your Church. As I mentioned, there were two and three generations when I first began in ministry. Today, there are four and five generations in our churches. And every one of them are different. Let me show you some of those differences. The builder generation. You have it written out there for you, don't you? Huh? A description of the builder generation? Do you have it there? World War I, Pearl Harbor, World War II, Korean War, Great Depression, Savers. They became very frugal, hard workers, patriotic, private. You try to put these people into a small group and expect them to open up and talk about anything and everything, it's not going to happen, friend. That's not part of their culture. So you better think about that when you have a small group. They're probably not going to go as far as you want them to go. And they're certainly not going to be like the current young generation that will tell you the size of their castle or something else. They just tell you everything. They just blurt it right out all over the place. In fact, you read Facebook and you'll find most of it right there. Uh, same thing. So all of these generations have their distinctiveness about them. And you need to come to understand that. So if you have a builder generation which has built most of our churches, and the culture of the most of our churches represents the builder generation, and the programs that the builder generation decided on are in most of our churches, and you want to bring in the younger generation, would you say you as a church are thriving with younger people, generation and families coming into your church, flocking into your church? If I look at who's here this morning, I can give you a conclusion. <laughs> Probably you are struggling in that area of younger people, younger families. What should that tell you? It should tell you that you've got some work to do of thinking through the issue of culture. And that'll take into a lot of things. Uh, the translation of the Bible, the language that you've chosen, 
and to use the style of clothing, styles of music, a lot of different issues you're going to have to think about if you want to be able to have a church where it can be intergenerational. I am not in favor of bringing in a new generation at the expense of getting rid of another generation. I think we should work towards an intergenerational church where they are all going to be represented and have a meaningful experience. Let me just give you one illustration. Most of us in this room grew up on a heavy dose of hymns. The average hymn has multiple themes in it. I dare say you don't think about all those themes when you're singing it, but it does have them there. Praise music has a single theme. Why? The current generation prefers a single theme to think about when they're singing. Preferably a theme that works towards the message and what it's going to be talking about. And why do they repeat some of their phrases? Because they want to think on them while they are repeating it. What does that mean to me? How can I do that? I hear people that are hymns only people refer to them as 711 choruses. Seven words re repeated 11 times. Uh, I said, well, if you don't like those, you probably don't really care for the Messiah, do you? Or the Hallelujah Chorus? You probably don't care for them, do you? Oh, yeah, that's great music. I said, is there any repetition in that? Yeah. Why? So you can think on it. So it can become meaningful to you. So if you are totally opposed to praise music, the younger generation is into that, and part of the reason, one of the reasons, is they like a single theme. And <clears throat> if you uh, don't allow that, they're going to have a hard time, because hymns are going to be ho-hum to them. They can't get into it. So as an older generation, think about becoming a blending effort. And blend this thing in together so that everybody can have meaningful worship. Take the issue of our generation, my part of the builder's generation, that uh, we learned to be very frugal. What taught us to be frugal? The Great Depression. And rationing. I don't know why you had rationing during the Second World War in Canada, but we had it in America. You couldn't buy anything if you didn't have a stamp. You couldn't buy gas. You couldn't buy some foods. You had to have a stamp. You learned to be very frugal. Well, you put us in a church with the current generation who max out all of their credit cards and spend money they don't have, and we got to learn how to live together. And if you don't allow that, how to, that process of learning how to live together, they're not going to stay. They're going to go somewhere else. So all of this is critical stuff for you to think about and work through. 
So it's not just a matter of suddenly having drums in the service and other instruments that the younger generation really likes. Think it through. How can we have all of that and do it in a godly fashion and honor God and yet make it so it's meaningful for everybody that's going to try to be there? Now, if that isn't enough for you to bite on and chew on, <laughs> uh, that's inside the church. Move with me outside the church. And you're going to be experiencing very significant change outside the church. There used to be, for decades, one main culture, and you didn't worry about some little subculture that started like the hippies in America in the 1960s. And uh, they were a nuisance. They smelled, and they looked bad, and it wouldn't work. But sooner or later, they're going to have to get a job. And the boss is going to say, now tomorrow before you come in to work, how about getting a haircut, and how about taking a shower, and how about washing those dirty clothes you got on, and if you're going to work here, that's what it's going to have to be, and they gradually melted into the culture. That's no longer happening in America. you got all of these multi-cultures around our churches. There is a homosexual community. There's a highly educated community. There's the poverty community. There is various ethnic groups, communities. And they're keeping their cultures. It's stretching America. Are you going to teach English and Spanish in your schools? Are you going to force them to learn English? And which is creating an issue for the churches. Because our churches tend to only reach people that are just like themselves. They don't reach homosexuals. Growing churches, I know of two or three, are right today and tomorrow morning they will have a homosexual or a lesbian sitting in their congregation because they are reaching into their community. There was a day when that would be, ooh, we don't want those kind of people around here. But they're trying to become like Jesus. He sat on a well with a woman who had been married five times and currently was just living with somebody. We've got a long ways to go in our churches. If we're going to turn the tide and if we're going to begin to grow, we have to wrestle with some of these issues. There's such diversification of cultures all around. And it's an issue. Okay? In the midst of all of these cultural issues and the confusion that's existing in churches and the challenge of it, 
in order for us to, regardless of the culture, proclaim the word of God. The local church needs to become a reflection of its community. So many churches only experience reaching those who are just like themselves. And if somebody from another culture happens to come in to their existing group, what do they do? They work feverishly to try to press them into their mold. They got all of their legalism that they got to press them into their mold about. I don't know how many people I run into that one day attended a great church, quote unquote, with a lot of legalism. Today, you want nothing to do with the church. They had all of these legalistic things, do's and don'ts, and, and all the rest that had no biblical basis, and it turned them off entirely. There was no room in those churches for cultural difference. Uh, we got to wrestle. I just want to hasten to say I'm not opposed to a more traditional church if the culture of the community warrants it. In fact, they should have a more traditional church if that's what the community, after you exegete the community, that that's what is needed. And... Uh, Hopefully you will do the work that is necessary to understand the cultures that you're going to be dealing with and come out at the right place. Tim Keller is the pastor of Redeemer Church in Manhattan. Are you familiar with him as a writer, Tim Keller? <clears throat> Good. He's a prolific writer, excellent writer, thought-provoking writer. He was a seminary professor before he went to Manhattan to start his church. And he was in the classroom challenging young men and other pastors who would come on campus to consider the cities. Don't vacate the cities. Reach the cities, metropolitan areas. And finally somebody said, if you're so burdened about that, why don't you? So in 1989, he moved to Manhattan started a church from nothing. Twenty years after that, he has 6,000 people attending his services on Sunday in Manhattan, in the middle of New York City. And here's a quote from his book, The Reason for God. He's a thinker. The Reason for God. Listen to his quote. An interesting example of cultural adaptation is my own congregation. Its growth in this environment has surprised, even shocked observers. I am repeatedly asked, how are you reaching thousands of young adults in such a secular place? The answer is that Christianity has done the answer is that Christianity has done in New York City what it has done in all other places that has grown. It has adapted significantly and positively to the surrounding culture without compromising its main tenets, the Word of God. You get that? He has learned how 
to adapt significantly, systemically is another word, positively to the surrounding culture without changing or compromising the word of God. New York City has attracted the gifted, the brightest, artistic, most ambitious, along with an appreciation of excellence. Along with this, the city attracts clusters of the poor, immigrants, and vulnerable minorities, such as homosexuals. Tim Keller styled his preaching and worship experience to communicate with this culture without changing the doctrine or message of the scriptures. Over 50% of the attenders of his church are under the age of 30. Upwards of 60% of his congregation are singles. He learned what I'm trying to teach you. He learned how to adapt to the culture that was around him and reach those people effectively for Christ. Well, i got to quit. As you can tell, I'm full I'm talking about this kind of stuff. I could talk to you about six more hours, but I'm not sure how much the human body can stand. And I'm watching the pastor as he keeps slouching down further and further. He's my clock up here. I don't really have a clock that I can look at, but I can tell that it's time to work towards closing. Observe Jesus connecting with and communicating with a different culture. Study the Bible with that in mind. I mentioned Jesus meeting with the woman at the well, John chapter 4. Do you know what he was doing? He was dealing with a different ethnicity. He was dealing with a different gender. He was dealing with a different morality. He was different religion. He learned how to reach into all of that and touch people connect with people, accept people, not their sin, but to accept those people and reach them. I'm not going to get to the next lessons that you've got, proven and fruitful evangelism strategies and methods. Uh, do you get the drift of what I'm doing in that next session? I mentioned these two books. I'll advance to them. Those two books. Ministries of Mercy by Tim Keller. I just talked to you about him. And the Church of Irresistible Influence in its Community by Robert Lewis. Those two books are dynamite. Study them. They will help you to see that you've got to turn your eyes outward as a church. Stop just looking at the fact that you've got believers here and you're ministering to believers. But you've got to turn your eyes outward and begin to reach into this community and touch lives and get into their lives. This will tell you how to do it. It's awesome stuff. In fact, a lot of the thoughts that I outlined down below that have come from those guys. And they are powerful, powerful writers that will help you 
do evangelism that growing churches are using today in reaching the lost. Stop. Anybody got a question? Where? Churchy unbelievers? Web unbelievers? Distant unbelievers? And unwebbed unbelievers, which is the vast majority of unbelievers. Nobody's connected to them. How are you going to get to them if you're not connected to them? It's ministries of mercy that will connect you with them. There are churches who have a mechanic in their church, or more, more, more than one. They offer periodically to help an unwed mother or a mother, single mom, where a divorce has taken place who doesn't have two nickels to rub together, they will fix her car for her for nothing. That is a ministry of mercy. There's a church in New England who is totally disconnected from his community, his little community. And the pastor heard one day that their community had volunteer fire department and one policeman who would have given anything to have a jaws of life to use in their work, but they didn't have budget for it. And that little community didn't want to hump the taxes to be able to get one. pastor said to his church, what do you think about us buying a jaws of life for our community? The congregation thought it was a great idea. They bought it. Then they called for a meeting of all the business owners, all the politicians, the movers and shakers of their community and the community at large to meet, not at their church, but at a neutral site. And a pastor got up and told, him, told them all how much they loved that community, how much they wanted to serve that community, how much they wanted to be a great part of that community and presented the jaws of life. Today, there is a connection that they are seeing many come to Christ. They broke that broken space. I could give you illustration after illustration. There's a church in Florida that every spring puts on their marquee, we'll help you with getting your high school equivalent certificate for free. You don't think if you help them that they're not going to take advantage of listening to you. See, you pick a ministry of mercy in people's lives out there, and that's how you connect with them. And there's tons of ways to do that. They'll outline. Keller gives you the um, biblical apologetic, basically, of the ministry of mercies, which is what he used in New York City. Whereas Robert Lewis will give you the practical application of what a church may do. For example, his church, which is in Missouri, his church heard that their local public grade school didn't have enough budget to paint a couple of classrooms. 
over the summer. He went to the principal, who was a lady. He said, would we have permission to buy the paint and provide the painters and paint those rooms for you? She cried. She said, I had no idea a church even cared about us. It wasn't long that principal was saved and became a member of the church. That's ministries of mercy. It's a biggie for reaching into our community and reaching people for Christ. I'll stop. Unless you got a question. Pastor. And the slouch is not Lord of the slouch's conviction. We can come in the same way that, uh, or we can leave the same way that we came in, or we can choose. I don't know if you've been looking over here, there's three words here. We've been teaching the boys and girls. Everything starts with a decision. But it doesn't end with a decision. It takes determination. And then and only then will there be a demonstration. I'm going to ask you to do something this afternoon, this evening, before tomorrow morning. Because we're going we're gonna to open this up a little bit. And i got a funny feeling he's going <laughs> to... Kick some more slats out from underneath tomorrow morning. What is it that God is speaking to us about? There's enough manpower, woman power, God power in this room to influence not only this church, your church, this community. But our world. We haven't just brought Dr. Milo up here just because he's got nothing better to do. It's not going to be just your leader's responsibility. It's every believer. That's why we were saved. This is our time. This is our world. And he's given us the same mandate. So, as we go from here today, we go with, wow, God wants to use us. There ought to be an encouraging element to this, right? Every one of you, no matter where you are, God is putting you through a variety of different things to reach a variety of different people. Look around the room. Every one of us is so unique. And every one of us has one of those cultural groups out there that we're connecting with. In that we're in their face or they're in our face. So it's like, okay, now what do we do? That's part and parcel. When you hear the word church chat, folks, you've heard it before. These are key meetings for us. It's the code word of we really need to get together and we really need to talk. So I want to thank you, first of all, here for coming. 
and clearing your schedules and updating. Now you know why, right? I mean, you went through the anxiety of having to clear your schedule, and now you've done it.